So thank you so much for joining me, Andy. You describe yourself in your bio on the Schumacher College website as a writer, performer and, and scholar of religion. Uh, you're a lecturer at, at Schumacher. Mm -hmm. um, what, what courses are you currently teaching on here? I was brought here to uh, run a program, a master's program in ecology and spirituality, mm -hmm. which isn't currently running for complicated reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm in charge of developing a new residential master's programme, um, which is currently going out under the title of Engaged Ecology. Okay. Um, and it incorporates um, some elements of the previous master's. Nice. So I, I describe myself as teaching broadly within the area of ecology and spirituality and where they meet. Yeah, great. So we will certainly come back to those topics. But um, I thought maybe we could start by inviting you to say a little bit about yourself. So I just heard before we started recording that uh, you, you grew up in Devon. In, for the benefit of, of listeners, we are speaking from uh, High Cross House, is that what it's called? That's right, yeah. Um, on the Dartington Estate, just near Schumacher College. Um, so yeah, where was it that you were born? And can you tell us about your... Uh, whether there was anything in your early years that d developed this interest in ecology and alternative spirituality? Gosh, interesting. So I, I was born in Paynton, um, which, no offence to Paynton, is a kind of seedy seaside town. Um, that probably was quite offensive, wasn't it? It's pretty seedy. <laughs> um, and, and I grew up in a just outside a small village um, called Stoke Gabriel um, on, the, on the banks of the River Dart estuary and had in many ways a very sort of idyllic childhood playing in the woods and um, sailing dinghies on the river and walking on Dartmoor and so I suppose um, I had the thing that um, many people crave now, now that most people grow up in urban environments. I had that immersion in, in nature, um, getting muddy, getting wet, mm. um, all of that. Um, I came from a pretty conventional, established middle-class family. Um, so certainly, you know, um, uh, no, no interest at all in psychedelics or um, weird culture. Um, I mean, my dad was a very keen bird watcher, so I suppose I picked up a knowledge of birds by osmosis. Mm. Um, and and they were sort of broadly Church of England in in that vague sense of going to church at Christmas and Easter and a few times in between. And then this bizarre thing started happening in my late um, childhood. Um, I started having blackouts in church. We'd go to church and I would just faint and wow. had to be carried out. And um, you can read into that what you will. Um, I mean, maybe it was just um, blood sugar issues, or maybe uh, I was being forcibly ejected from <laughs> the Christian church. But anyway, I'd be, I'd be carried out, and, and Stoke Gabriel is famous for having this thousand-year-old yew, yew tree just outside the church. And and I think, you know, I'm 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 back projecting now. I'm I'm making a story out of my life, but um, I certainly felt more of a connection to that yew tree than ever I felt within the walls of the mm -hmm. church. And um, I think there was a sort of yearning in my childhood, um, a sense that there was something numinous 
um, something mysterious, something enigmatic, something weird to be found in the other than human world, in, mm. in the trees, in the rivers, in the hills, that I never found in, in Christianity. So that's where the spark happened, I suppose. Mm, okay, so uh, you, you went off and did a first degree that was in? I did a, eventually did an, a degree in ecology. Okay. I mean, I've never known what I wanted to do with my life. I've just blundered through. Um, <laughs> you, but, but then you did a PhD in ecology. So, I, I mean, did that, do a that, PhD that's in quite, ecology. That's quite a commitment. And, and so um, what was the actual title? What was the topic of Sonia? Um, so my, my PhD in ecology, I was looking at the distribution of mammals across continents, mm-hmm. um, which was a way of trying to get at the vexed question of, of how many species there are in the world. Okay. Um, it's a long time since I've looked at the literature, but at the time no one knew how many species there were in mm. the world, nor how one could predict. Um, so I was, I was coming at that problem from a particular angle. It was very dry, it was very mathematical. Maybe we still don't know how many species there are, but we do know that a lot of them are going extinct. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and, and, so, and have you, be, have you, had you developed an interest in the, the weirder side of life by this point? Or? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, um, uh, I, I decided in, in my teens at school that um, I, I was a hippie and I was going to become a hippie. <laughs> Um, this was around the time of the Battle of the Beanfield, um, uh, where a group of travellers trying to get to Stonehenge to celebrate the summer solstice were very violently um, stopped by the police. Mm. And, and that news coverage made me go, oh my God, these are my people. These are the people I've been looking for all my mm. life. Take me with you. Um, and I had my first mushroom trip when I was 19. Um, I did my undergraduate degree at Sheffield University and obviously uh, the Peak District is a fine place to go picking mushrooms Mm. Um, and I discovered both psychedelics and that people wrote about psychedelics Mm. um, at more or less the same time and I think I I thought ah yeah that's what I want to do Um, but there's no obvious career path into becoming a writer on psychedelics so I meandered my way into or, that. Or so you thought. Oh, so I yeah, thought, yeah. yeah. Um, so this was something of an independent discovery then. And how did your family sort of take to this, this interest in, uh, in psychedelics? And well, I, I, remember, I remember telling my dad that I'd, I'd got a deal with Faber and Faber, you know, this um, learned, um, or this great instit- publishing institution, um, uh, to write a book. And, and you know, they, they paid me um, well. Um, I was just at the last uh, moment of getting decent advances. So I could see he was deeply excited and thrilled. And uh, then he asked me what it was about. And I was like, well, it's the cultural history of the magic mushroom. And you could see the cognitive dissonance (laughs) playing out in his face, you know. Faber and Faber, psychedelics, Faber and Faber, psychedelics. (laughs) Poor man, (laughs) made him suffer. (laughs) Very good. Um, so that book was what 2006 2006 yeah. Right? yeah uh shroom a cultural history of the magic mushroom and uh it's you know to many people's surprise picking up and maybe expecting some kind of you know, love letter to to the mushroom and uh hearing or receiving the news that it's been ingrained in human culture for tens of thousands of years and Actually, it's it's rather critical uh, and and sceptical of, of much of the uh, you know the, the stories and you know, mythology of, mm. of mushrooms that are out there, which so, which 
surprised me in a way, and I think many it surprised many people that, that pick it up. But mm. uh, I found it incredible, actually all the more useful and interesting uh, for that. And mm. it's clearly a, a work of real, you know, scholarship. And I mean, I'm, I'm curious to come on to a bit later in the conversation, perhaps about whether there's any updates, uh, mm. you know, any changes in your thinking on uh, since 2006 on that topic. But well, I, I suppose I would say it most definitely was a love letter um, to the mushroom. But uh, um, in my academic training, I was always taught that you should never trust what people say. If pe someone cites someone else, you should always go back to the original mm. source. And what I found was whenever I picked up a book on psychedelics, they would say the same things. And it was starting to sound like mythology. So mm. the story about Gordon Wasson going to Mexico and Albert Hoffman with his bicycle ride and Aldous Huxley. And it, it was like nobody could write a book about psychedelics without mm -hmm. devoting the first mm -hmm. third to retelling this story right, right, right. in ever more kind of lurid terms. <laughs> and I thought, well, what happens if we go back to the original yeah. sources? And to me, a movement has come of age when it can be self-critical, mm. when it can turn the critical lens on itself, when you're still at that point where you are um, othering the mainstream and critiquing the mainstream, and I understand that, that's important, um, you haven't really come of age, and you come of age when you turn that lens back on yourself, mm -hmm. and you can take it on the chin, the fact that in Britain, um, the earliest reference to someone intentionally taking a psilocybin mushroom for its psychedelic effects is 1970. Mm -hmm. That's the earliest reference. Well. Um, that blows apart any claim that we've been doing it for millennia. It doesn't mean it's not true, but there's a huge absence of evidence mm -hmm. up to that point. And I think it makes our, our claims to be taken seriously stronger if you say, yeah, we can't claim an ancient pedigree. Mm -hmm. You know, the evidence isn't there. That doesn't undermine what we're trying to do. Yeah. You don't need something to be ancient for it to be justified. Mm -hmm. um, and and there are many examples of, of some heinous and odious aspects of humanity that have venerable pedigrees, like the examples I use are rape, right. homophobia, misogyny, mm -hmm. empire, mm -hmm. you know, none of these things we would want in an enlightened society, but they are ancient. Um, yeah. So one of your areas of, of interest, expertise, I, I believe, is, is druidry. Uh, at the, am I right? Oh uh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, least, yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. I, I actually at the Extinction Rebellion Southwest Rebel Rising, which was a kind of a sort of festival preparation mm. festival for the International Rebellion that happened in October, um, uh, I gave a talk on psychedelics. It was called Psychedelics in the Living Planet, mm -hmm. and uh, a woman came up to me afterwards and introduced herself as a druid, mm. and said. Uh, Thank you for the talk. Really interesting. Um, you, you, you know, of course, that you know we've been using mushrooms in particular for a long time. Mm. I was like, wow. Well, no, not really. Um, but I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd love to learn more, and I'm actually still waiting to have a sort of proper follow-up conversation with this person. I mean, yeah, I've, I've read through. And you say there's no you know, definitive evidence. So what what there is, in fact, is yeah. just an absence of evidence, mm -hmm. and it's it's to do with the nature of um, the beast, which is that. Um, to consume mushrooms, you don't need any 
apparatus. You don't right. need a syringe. Right. You don't need a pipe. You don't need a grinder. You don't need a mm -hmm. enema tube. You know, mm -hmm. all of these things mm -hmm. that are, that would survive in the archaeological record. Yeah. You just need to pick a mushroom and eat it. Yeah. Maybe you need a cup, but. Um, to make tea and therefore because mushrooms rot within hours of mm -hmm. being picked unless you preserve them yeah there's just no evidence now that you can interpret that either way and there are people who argue emphatically um, you mentioned the ancient druids um, who we think are an iron age priesthood um, in Britain and northwest Europe um, you know, there are people who argue emphatically that they didn't use any kind of psychedelic plant or mushroom. And um, there are people like your friend who you met who argue that they did. But there's a complete silence in the, in the record. And mm. and you that means you're free to make both those arguments and they have equal validity. So, so silence, we're talking more in the, in the archaeological record. At least, Correct. Like we're not yeah. going to find any artefacts which are well, we, they use, but there is, you know, these are oral traditions. And mm -hmm. so what, what weight uh, can we place, should we ever place on, on stories and, and songs perhaps also that have, that have been passed down? I don't think you can place any weight on it myself. It's, yeah. I can create a story right here and right now it could it could um, uh, become popular and everyone can believe it as true. Um, it doesn't mean that the Druids weren't using mushrooms. It's just it's very hard with a, my scholar's hat on sure. to say with any certainty what they did. Now I think um, since since writing Shroom, I, when I wrote the book, I took a very sort of hardline postmodern position, pretty much saying we can't say anything about the ancient past mm -hmm. because of this absence of evidence. And I've kind of softened a bit in the intervening years. And I think that, and there are a lot of ifs in this, but if Druids were um, the nearest thing we had to an indigenous kind of shamanism, and if, as the Roman accounts say, they were destroyed in AD, AD 60 on the island of Anglesey um, by the Romans, um, then that knowledge would have been lost. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, they say, don't they, that when an Amazonian shaman dies, it's the equivalent of a whole library mm -hmm. in the West being burnt. Um, there's a lot of ifs and buts and maybes there. But if Druids were our shamans and they had that plant knowledge, then it makes sense that they that's the sort of thing they would have known about. And, of course, it was lost when the Romans... Um, took out the Druids as an institution. Yeah. And but then, there's a lot of ifs in there. And, I mean, there are other powerful psychoactive plants of these lands, particularly right. the, the nightshades, mm -hmm. um, Hembane, Datura, Mandrake. Mm -hmm. Just finished the book Apocalyptic Witchcraft oh, right. by Peter Gray. Don't you have heard this? I on, don't know. On, on no. Scarlet Imprint Press. And, um, like, a uh, challenging, a very beautiful, very poetic read. Um, and... Yeah, there's. It sounds like there's uh, more evidence of of some use of of those plants, um, and that they, you know, they were they were feared, and the people who used them were were, were demonized, um, resulting at some point in persecution and, and you know burnings and um, yeah. Do you, do you have any knowledge on on how witches and witchcraft like weaves into that story? Do you think that's an, uh, another possible source of n knowledge of uh, indigenous psychoactive plants of these lands? Um, I mean, again, it's it's 
possible. Um, I'm, I'm, modern scholarship is, is sceptical of the idea of witches as um, uh, one popular interpretation of witches in, in alternative circles is that they were um, oppressed healers, midwives, herbalists. I'm unpersuaded of that interpretation. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the lessons of the witch trials are more scary in that I think they were just the weird people who people didn't mm -hmm. like, who got mm -hmm. picked on and um, ultimately accused of witchcraft and, and scapegoated in that way. Now, that's not to say that people didn't use herbs and have herbal knowledge. Um, I'm not such an expert on the use of the solanaceous plant. I'm sure they have been used and, and played a part. The, the thing I would want to impress is that when we have these kinds of discussions, we implicitly universalise the psychedelic experience or the entheogenic experience. We assume that it leads to a particular endpoint, which could be some kind of mystical experience or it could be some kind of nature mystical experience. And I'm very keen um, to impress that you cannot separate these plants, these substances, from the cultural context and the worldview of the people taking them. Mm -hmm. And what is very obvious to us may not have been obvious to people in the past. I'll give you a very simple example. We make a very clear distinction between um, the medicinal use of a substance and the religious use of a substance. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that may not have obtained in the past. Mm -hmm. And you just look at indigenous cultures where... Um, you can't say now we're doing religion and now we're doing shamanistic healing and now we're doing mystical encounter with the spirit. It's all this sort of, sure. you, you can't put the cookie cutter of our categories down in the same way. And so one of the things that matters to us is, is connection to nature. Mm -hmm. But someone in the Iron Age probably wasn't that concerned with connecting yeah, with nature. Sure. They were probably more concerned with disconnecting with nature mm, and keeping mm. their feet dry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, I mean, since you mentioned the, um, uh, the both the medical side of things and the religious mm. side of things, and uh, you, you did a second PhD, which I don't think we, we mentioned. Right. Yes. Um, you know, in the recorded part of this, at least, um, which was in the well, the study of religion. Again, like, you want to tell right. us what topic that was in, just for our interest? Um, well, I was studying contemporary druidry, actually. Okay. Uh, I was okay. studying bardism, <laughs> um, the performance of um, music, story, and song, both within druidry and in what was then. Um, the big environmental protest movement of the time, so the road protests. Okay, and so and and how did you make that switch from ecology to? Road? Oh, I mean, it was bizarre, really. Um, so after my after my PhD in ecology, I got very disillusioned with um, uh, the role of science in affecting change in the world, um, and I became uh, an environmental activist against the building of new roads. And through that, I met uh, Graham Harvey, um, who's an expert in paganism and animism. And he just rang me up one day and invited me to do a second PhD. And um, I was on the dole and I didn't know what else to do, so I said yes. And um, I didn't understand a word of what anyone was talking about in the humanities for about 18 months. It was a complete mystery. And then this beautiful moment happened where I suddenly had read enough and um, mm. 
Mm. I realised I was enjoying myself and, and this was the thing I'd actually been looking for. Okay. Um, so it was completely um, random. So this is one of the reasons why I've been uh, very keen for us to speak because we are witnessing the, mm. uh, the flourishing once again of, of, environment, of environmental yeah. activism in this country in the form of Extinction yeah. Rebellion. Um, actually, I mean, I have not a totally dissimilar story in that I did Masters in Physics and then another Masters in Complexity Sciences, mm. had funding to do a PhD and uh, left initially just thinking I was going to take a few months out and instead got uh, sucked into the world of uh, environmental activism with a group called Climate Camp. Mm. Never went back to do the PhD. Um, so well, you you got further than I did. <laughs> um, and uh, so that was 2010. So here we are, sort of you know, nine, almost ten years on now. Um, and Extinction Rebellion is is become a big thing. Um, and uh, I've been pretty involved. I was there at the Declaration of Rebellion in October, around about a year ago. Mm, and I've uh, been on the streets of London and during the two major rebellions in April and more recently, you know, the beginning of this month, uh, October 2019. Um, one of the things that fascinates me about Extinction Rebellion is that uh, there is a strong uh, you know, mystical streak running mm. through it, let's say. Um, and it was, uh, many of the key figures are from, well, outside of London, from Stroud, from Totnes. Mm. Uh, it's uh, uh, an amazing woman, Azul. I guess you know Azul, mm. who's running the, the Earth Wisdom Tenders, mm. um, who have had a strong presence at many of the Extinction Rebellion actions mm. that are uh, representing Earth based spirituality and mm. bringing those ideas and actually more practices in, you know, onto the streets. Uh, and I think it's incredibly important for at least a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, because it it weaves well into what Extinction Rebellion call their regenerative culture. Mm. That like we have to take care of, <laughs> well, not just the planet but ourselves. Mm. That if this is you know we're not going to secure this change in a week, a month, or a year even. So this has got to be something sustainable. And I think the practices uh, from these traditions are suitable for keeping us uh, happy and well over the longer term um, and then uh, it links in with this what many people see as uh, the, the root problem or pretty close to it this mm. sense of separation between humans and nature the wild the non-human world whatever kind of language mm. you want to use um, this sense that Mm, for many years now, we've been operating with a model which, at, in, at its conception, was not like uh, entirely faulty. You can kind of see why it came about that nature was an infinite source of resources mm -hmm. and an infinite sink for our wastes. Like mm -hmm. when 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 civilization was a lot smaller, that like kind of kind of worked. Mm -hmm. But the, the scale of civilization has grown to a point where like, it's clearly a very bad model in which mm -hmm. to. You know, to live, um, and we're having a hard time adjusting to, to right. that reality. Yeah. I and, and others involved in Extinction Rebellion think that that uh, that deep reconnection, that um, re change in perspective from seeing ourselves one and the same as nature, is uh, a 
very important. You might say uh, a necessary but not sufficient condition for um, meaningful action on the climate and ecological crisis. Um, and furthermore, myself and others involved have had strong unitive experiences uh, involving psilocybin mushrooms and other psychedelics and thus think that they could be a very important tool mm. uh, in shifting people's perspectives in this way. Uh, that was a lot, so I just get your thoughts on that on that proposition. Um, mm. You know, that can, can psychedelic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, uh, play some role in shifting people's attitudes towards nature and the natural world and making a meaningful difference at this time of climate and ecological crisis? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, maybe I should start by saying I'm, I, I'm not a fan of this, um, the language that we're disconnected from nature. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a fan of the language, though I understand the problem and I agree with the problem. I would put it differently. Why I don't like it is it presupposes human exceptionalism, that there's something about us that could be disconnected mm -hmm. from nature. And in no sense of the word am I disconnected from nature. Even though I'm sat here and we're surrounded by computers and I'm in an office with central heating and um, my gut is still full of millions of bacteria, mm -hmm. um, my body is covered in living organisms, I breathe in uh, the atmosphere and I make a contribution to the atmosphere by breathing out. I am completely embedded mm -hmm. within nature. And, and the, 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 the statement of the problem restates the problem if you say humans are disconnected from nature. I, I'd be more brutal and I'd say the problem is human narcissism. And, and that's far less comfortable that we've become increasingly narcissistic whereby all we care about is the human and, um, and increasingly ourselves in Western capitalism, mm. such mm. that we are now selfie culture, where we're just looking at ourselves, looking at ourselves, looking at ourselves, mm. looking at ourselves. And we've forgotten um, the jackdaws who live uh, in the trees around our houses, and um, we keep very parochial company. So um, it's can we, can we draw ourselves out of that sort of narcissistic black hole and turn our attention outwards and away to the other than human? Yes, and I, I agree completely that that has to happen. Um, and can psilocybin mushrooms help with that? Absolutely. Um, but they have to be used in the right context. It comes mm. down to context again. And then when people say that they have experienced connection with nature, I often don't know what they mean by that because they still might not know that that was a jackdaw or that mm -hmm. that's an oak tree and not an ash tree mm -hmm. or that um, they don't actually know anything in the sense of what I mean by knowledge about the world about them. Mm. Do you think there's an intimate relationship between connection and knowledge? I think, yeah, that, I'm I think, that. you know, of course you can have, you can have a, a meaningful spiritual connection with the world about you. Um, when I was a young man, I went to Japan and I had no idea what the other than human 
um, people were in Japan and yet, you know, I climbed to the top of Mount Fuji and I had an extraordinary time. Mm -hmm. But your knowledge, um, I think of it as a kind of figure of eight between logos on the one hand, mm. the mind, knowledge, and mythos, the unknown, mm. uh, on the other. And, and they inform each other. So um, if, you, if you know something about the world about you, then when you consume a psychedelic, your, your interpretation of what happens is fueled by your knowledge. Mm. And then that numinous experience can inform what you know about the world and, and it becomes a kind of virtuous circle or a, a folding back in on itself or a, a Mobius strip or, or you know, whatever the metaphor is. Mm. Um, so the context is is key and if you do what I've done in my youth and take mushrooms and go to a gig or you take mushrooms and go to the pub on New Year's yeah. Eve you're not going to have a transcendental encounter with the other than human you're gonna yeah. it's a very human encounter with the human yeah. and in my experience thoroughly unpleasant um, <laughs> but if you can create context where people mm. can have that and and that's that then becomes interesting and that's I'm profoundly interested by what you've been doing in the psychedelic society of creating um, context for people to have meaningful psychedelic experiences. Um, and, and I'm interested in seeing a, a sort of plurality and a, a diversity of context mm. ranging from the clinic through to what the psychedelic society are doing through to people creating their own um, indigenous rituals for the use of liberty caps, whatever that might look yeah. like. Um, whether that's in a teepee in the woods or around a fire at Stonehenge or I don't know, you know. Many people are concerned in the psychedelic community right now with what they see as a um, creeping, I mean it's, it's probably <laughs> faster than creeping now, corporatization of, right, of yeah. the space. Yeah. Um, and you know, my understanding is, you know, huge sums of money are being raised for the imminent rollout of psychedelic clinics. I mean, it's already happening with ketamine clinics in right. the United States. Yeah. Um, and it sounds well, it sounds like we're, we're both broadly sympathetic to the idea of psychedelic medicine mm -hmm. and psychedelics being administered in, you know, rather controlled settings mm -hmm. by doctors and, and therapists for people that might be suffering from, you know. Uh, depression, OCD, PTSD in a, in a rather acute sense such that they, they can't even really, they might not even consider taking themselves to something like our like the psychedelic society experience retreats which mm -hmm. are in a group setting you already need to have kind of baseline mm. um, willingness, ability to interact with other human beings and, right. um, and, uh, and similarly wouldn't necessarily see themselves taking part in some kind of indigenous ceremony um, might seem too unfamiliar and, and, and strange. So, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm glad that's happening, but I feel like it's, we have, uh, let's say, in, you know, intersecting crises. I don't think the mental mm. health crisis is actually separate from our climate right. and ecological crisis. Right. Um, I think for many people, there are many people who are happily, you know, like, okay mental health mm. but I but uh, are well as in your words you know still wrapped up in this human narcissism mm. um, have not found and, and are not changing their uh, 
behaviors, and by that I include you know, voting behaviors and spending behaviors that would be necessary to bend our, our civilization mm. in a sustainable or even regenerative direction. And uh, I don't think these, you know, like psychedelic mental health clinics are really going to help a whole load with that. And, that, mm. and that's where I think we need things like these, you know, these, uh, new indigenous mm. spaces and, and, and ceremonies. Um, I mean, I, I, I would confidently make a prediction that uh, I suspect um, psychedelic therapy within the clinic will always have limited long-term efficacy. Mm -hmm. and, and that's because depression isn't just something that happens in your right, brain. Right. It's, it's social and it's cultural. And if you're suffering from depression and um, you go and have a dose and you, you have a momentary um, respite from that and then you go back home to some shitty little town in the arse end of nowhere where everyone's unemployed and on benefits mm -hmm. and you're utterly forgotten by the mm -hmm. mainstream, your depression is going to come crashing in. And I would say depression is a is an utterly sane response to living in, that, in those kind of conditions. So without societal change, yeah. writ large, people are going to stay depressed. Mm -hmm. So um, I love the fact the play of words of the psychedelic society. It was something Terence McKenna used to talk mm. about, about what would a genuinely psychedelic society look like. And I would argue it's, it's where um, people who aren't necessarily suffering from mental illness are taking psychedelics periodically. Mm -hmm. It's not a one-time thing. Right. And, and the cognitive science seems to show that, you know, um, uh, that your brain wants to become <laughs> stiffer and more inflexible with age. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, if you have a certain percentage of society dosing themselves periodically, keeping their minds fluid and young, and, and then that can potentially revolutionize society. Yeah. And we are already seeing the psychedelicization of society, albeit in um, trivial ways like, you know, Avatar. The movie or mm. um, how to train your dragon three that was a beautiful psychedelic sequence but also I mean it's fantastic that Extinction Rebellion have incorporated that psychedelic mm -hmm. strand within their call to well, rebellion well, well it, you know it's tentative at this point still but more and more people I think are interested in finding some deeper integration of these topics so and you might say you know those those of us that have had some experience um, with these substances, mushrooms, and have thought deeply about this topic, mm. I'm, I'm mostly pretty convinced that there's something here. Mm. Um, so why do we not hear about uh, you know, indigenous or you know, newly indigenous mushroom traditions in the same way that there's, you know, we hear about all kinds of stuff about peyote and ayahuasca in mm. Central and South America. Um, and is there any useful and responsible way that that can be encouraged mm. in the UK in, in 2019? Mm. Yeah, really good question. Coincidentally, I'm, I'm doing some research on this at the moment. I'm trying to research um, the use of psychedelics within contemporary druidry, um, where it, it has to be said that the majority of um, the mainstream figures are, are deeply antipathetic to the use of psychedelics um, and 
I think it is, I think it is happening. It's still very underground and people tend not to document what they're doing or um, want to advertise it and, and that's because of the drug laws. Mm-hmm. But I think it is starting to happen and I think it's, it's there's sort of two, two uh, forces moving here. One is that um, the scientific research on psychedelics is giving people permission to do something that they were interested in but they they, the, the law basically um, discouraged them. So I think a lot of people have been interested in psychedelics for a long time, but were frightened of the law or frightened of the, the, what the media had told them about psychedelics, which is that you'll go mad and you'll think you can fly and you'll jump out of a window mm-hmm. and kill yourself and all those sort of hoary media myths. Yeah. Um, science has given a new legitimacy to taking psychedelics, whether they like it or not, and they mm. deny it, and they always say you should only take them in the um, confines of the clinic. But right. I know because people are contacting me, and mm. they are saying we're doing this because, well, the scientists have told us it's safe. Yeah. That's, one, that's one impetus. And the, another is just um, the sheer number of people now who have travelled to the Americas mm. or to the continent to take part in ayahuasca or peyote mm-hmm. or San Pedro ceremonies or iboga ceremonies, yeah. I should add, in Africa there. Um, and and I think there comes a point where people realise that they can't keep travelling to the Amazon, <laughs> particularly as slowly, slowly people are realising that you are not going to be able to fly anymore. <laughs> and people are going, OK, so what, what would an indigenous ceremony look like? Mm-hmm. So you've got these these two sort of um, forces, if you like, these two magnetic poles, and somewhere in the middle is the emergence of um, mm-hmm. new psychedelic ceremony. Yeah. Now, not everyone is is interested in the spiritual dimensions of psychedelics, and that's okay as well. You know, a lot of people I know would say we do it purely and utterly for aesthetic reasons to intensify our aesthetic appreciation of life, and spirituality plays no part in that. Um, that's why I say we need a plurality of settings, some of which are secular slash aesthetic, others are, you know, people with drums and feathers, and yeah. very ceremonial, and others like the Psychedelic Society, which I would say are secular, spiritual in a different way. Um, so I think psychedelic medicine has... I noted down here that perhaps people uh, are not taking psilocybin mushrooms for at least two reasons. Firstly, they think they're dangerous. Mm. Secondly, they think it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think psychedelic medicine has like done psychedelic science has done a great job at like yeah. convincing more and more people that okay, it's not dangerous. Or, like it can be done in a way that is safe. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's still seen as it's kind of a weird thing, especially if you're not taking it in a medical context. You know, many people might be okay. Well, you know, if it's if it's medicine and if it's for, to, if, for, if I've got a diagnosis and it's for the sake of yeah. curing that diagnosis, but the idea that you just go to a ceremony um, is, uh, I think is probably, and it's hard, hard for me, us maybe to really see because maybe we're a little bit more in it, but like, as if, if I try and like pull my head out of the bubble, I think that probably is the case. It's still well, weirdness has always been the major attraction for me. Right. I mean, right. Uh, McKenna always used to say, um, you know, he was a lover of the weird. Mm-hmm. Um, um and I mean that's one uh, of my key interests in druidry at this time, and and, and working mm. out whether there is some story to be t- weaved about 
the uh, you know, indigenous use or even like possible indigenous use of psychoactive plants, including psilocybin mm-hmm. mushrooms um, in these lands. Because uh, I have a feeling that if people feel that uh, something has a long history of use, there's some mm-hmm. tradition of use, um, it makes it less weird. Basically, right. it makes it makes it less strange, okay, and we don't. Yeah. And of course, there's going to remain something about the exper- this experience that is, you know, always weird. It's not to say it's, you know we got, but it's just about um, <laughs> getting making it seem um, uh, get, get, getting people you know across the line of, to, mm. to to try it at least. Um, and, and what we've heard from you earlier in the conversation is that you know there's not a lot, there's not really a lot to, to say about that. It would it would be hard to justify it. Um, and and I and I also say I really heard what you said about just because something's old doesn't mean it's you know right or good. You know, homoph- the, homophobia and slavery. You know, whatever these. Are. But if if people were to um, set themselves up as a you know psychedelic druid, then it it exists. And um, I mean, I'm a great believer that. Someone has to make this stuff up. <laughs> All of it gets made up okay. at some point. And some of it through creativity, some of it through in- inspiration, psychedelic or otherwise. And, um, you know, I know people who are holding regular monthly uh, medicine ceremonies in the context of druidry, and they're mm-hmm. doing it for, for healing purposes yeah. and initiating people um, um, people who've never done it before, but saying, right, we are providing a druidic ceremonial context mm. for the purposes of healing where you can come and consume mm. mushrooms. And they, put, they, they are um, activists in the sense that they're, they're risking arrest by yeah. doing that. But they're saying, the times require it. Mm. I'm prepared to, mm. to take that risk. I do want to come into the law part, but it just, that just conjured in me a thought that it feels that uh, as... Uh, as a as a country, as a, as a people of this island, we are uh, we've kind of lost ourselves, and <laughs> in in, men, in many ways, and yeah. people are like, well, and one response to that is people are kind of like dig, digging back into the past to right. see if there's something that they can hold on to again. And the place that many people have got to, it seems, is uh, you know post-war Britain and mm-hmm. um, you know which feeds into the sort of the, the, in, you know, the idea of an independent Britain and, and, and borders and um, and respect for authority and military mm-hmm. and so on um, and I think that it's in a sense, it's like I think people kind of had the right instinct, but like didn't, <laughs> we haven't gone back, we haven't dug nearly deep enough or gone back yeah. nearly far enough. And I think that there actually, I think there is a sense of real interest and pride in uh, Britain's uh, you know, mystical heritage, mm. King Arthur. Mm-hmm. You know, like people people like Robin Hood. You know, in yeah. some sense, people people like um, these. Uh, stories of magic and swords and forests and um, and to uh, I think it's a very interesting opportunity for the psychedelic movement if you like to uh, to claim some of that territory almost Mm. 
to say that you know we too are part of the um, the story of of these lands mm. and um, by engaging in these practices, these rituals, these ceremonies, this is not something new and mm. weird and you know, new age. And this is something which, um, whether or not psilocybin mushrooms themselves have been used, you know, druidry at least has been around for a long time. And, mm. and we might say at least, you know, druids have decided that at least now these substances fit well into that mm. worldview. Um, so a... Yeah, I wonder whether we will see something of a you know a druidic renaissance over the the, the coming years, as um, n- n- you know, not or and a growing interest towards these kinds of topics in the context of I think you know inevitable backlashes, maybe too strong at least, but um, uh, getting into perspective of kind of corporate psychedelic medicine mm. and seeing the limitations mm. there. Um, yeah, for, for many years, uh, I marked the summer solstice by going to um, the, a place near Avebury, very close to Avebury Stone Circle, uh, where with a group of friends we had a fire, um, we had mushrooms and we played acoustic music around the fire all night and then would climb up to a barrow and watch the sun rise. And I have no idea whether people did anything remotely similar to that in the past, but mm. the feeling was of doing something mm. ancient. Mm-hmm. And, and in a sense that, I know I can't prove with my scholar's hat on that that's what people did, but that feeling of ancientness is part of that, that sense of rootedness that I think you're, you're alluding to. I mean, we are we are a profoundly nostalgic culture, and I think to our detriment. You know, you, you said rightly that right now people are desperate to cling on to something in the past and that post-war kind of feeling of. But um, we're sort of hampered by the past. I mean, I think the past casts long shadows. I'm not sure we've ever got over the Roman Empire, and I don't think we've ever, mm-hmm. we certainly haven't got over the Second World War, mm. which we won, but it, it mm. broke the country, mm. and, um, and, and we look for solutions in the wrong places. And I, just recently I started thinking, because I include myself in that, I'm a pr- profoundly nostalgic person who <laughs> has always looked to the ancient past for exactly that kind of thing you're looking for, for, for authenticity, a place of authenticity in the ancient past, which would teach me how to be in the present. Mm. And I think there's huge value in that. But lately I've been turning it on its head and going, so how would it be to imagine myself as an ancestor for future generations? What would I have to do? What would the practices Mm. I could do Mm. that would mean that I left something worthwhile? Mm. And then creating a psychedelic druidry or a indigenous British shamanism or whatever it is, it might be new and we might be a bit ham-fisted and we might be getting a lot wrong, but we could set in motion something that within a generation or two or three yeah. could actually be something amazing. Yeah, I mean, and what I'm... Um, one aspect that interests me, excites me about this, is that the, the potential for this to be taken really seriously by the state, let's see, as uh, an actor of 
you know, for better or worse, still some legitimacy and certainly for like financial means in our uh, current mm. culture, civilization. Um, given that, uh, well, Parliament's declared a climate and ecological emergency. Uh, we are, are the, the state is already attempting to shift our behaviours in this regard, mostly in pretty lame and subtle ways. Mm -hmm. But it's if we're si if we if we're serious about this, it's we're, there's going to be you know much more significant uh, changes to come. Mm -hmm. I believe. Can we imagine a future in which? Uh, the state or even you might say like philanthropy um, recognises these substances and these practices as a potentially very important uh, power in shifting people's attitudes uh, towards climate, environment, nature and see them as you know so and that there's a time where we can speak about uh, you know changing our energy system cha changing our banking system and also a psychedelic druidry as all part of a kind of green new deal mm. if you've heard this phrase this like what, that, mm. can psychedelic druidry become part of the green new deal there you go <laughs> i dropped that one on you uh these are big questions to which I, I don't feel particularly um, able to answer. I mean, I, is it I, th I think there is something profoundly countercultural about psychedelics. I mean, they, they, they disrupt, even at a cognitive level, um, they disrupt hierarchical structures of the brain, <laughs> right? They allow um, you to break out of um, ingrained habits and and what do governments like they like ingrained habits they like people to keep doing the things they've always done they like conservatism they like people to be good consumers and you know do I think there's something about say dropping LSD and growing your hair long and wearing flares and listening to the Grateful Dead no those are cultural choices but but I think um, seeing the world differently can be profoundly countercultural and therefore it's really hard to imagine how the state as it currently operates could incorporate psychedelics in a way that um, lay beyond the clinic. So the clinic is safe because mm. we're dealing with ill people and we're making ill people better mm. and it's discursively controlled by doctors, by doctors in white lab coats mm. uh, who write papers and produce statistics and are impeccable in their methodology and um, you know any hint that uh, Robin Carhart Harris is about to mutate into Timothy Leary and <laughs> the project will be closed down right um, it's not going to happen right um, so it's it's hard to see how the state as it currently operates which is completely invested and enmeshed in oil and carbon and consumerism mm. could tolerate the kind of change we're talking about mm. and i can only imagine it can happen through some kind of revolution mm. um one would hope a velvet revolution and a purple velvet revolution rather mm. than a violent revolution but yeah. um you know we we fudged our revolution right i mean that's one of the long shadows of history we 
We decapitated our king and then went, oh my God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> bring, bring royalty back. You know? yeah. uh, we've never had land reform. Yeah. And I, I, I agree that at this point it seems uh, difficult to imagine the state taking on an you know, encouraging role uh, towards the more you know, the antigenic ceremonial ritual aspects of um, these substances. Um, although somehow I also feel it's not impossible. And actually, you would be familiar with Huxley's Island. Yeah. The, as a kind of coming-of-age ritual, the, the young adults uh, are, are given the moksha medicine, mm-hmm. and I think they don't even have any adults with them. They're just sent into the mountains to kind of co-create a ceremony with the medicine, mm-hmm. and they come down again as adults. Um, and uh, that's, that's one vision of a kind of functioning society in which there is a, a kind of institutional place for these practices and these substances. I think more, more realistically, in the short term at least, is decriminalisation. Mm. Is at least the state mm. saying, okay, well, we're, not <laughs> we're not sure about all this stuff, but we're not going to you know, be throwing you in jail for, for, you know, for your interest or for use mm. of these plants and substances. Um, Can I say something provocative at this point, which is, to a certain extent, the state does already legitimise the taking of psychedelics, and Mm -hmm. it does that through festival culture. Um, It it does this deliberate turning a blind eye. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm of that generation where I just caught the tail end of the free festival movement, where um, festivals were deeply political and we had to fight for our right to have festivals. And what's happened is, is... Festivals have become legal, mm. very difficult to run and financially precarious. And what they are is they are state-legitimated places for people to go and take drugs, provided they then go back to work on Monday. Right. And I, I can't help wondering if one of the worst things that's happened to psychedelic culture is MDMA, mm. which um, doesn't seem to have those revolutionary um, that revolutionary potential became huge, became mainstream, mm. and people just took MDMA, had a fantastic time, and then dutifully went back to work on Monday, mm-hmm. um, thinking that they were hippies or ravers or whatever. I don't know. This, these I'm thinking off the top well, of my I th- head. I here. think I think we can. There's there's increasing uh, number of papers in the academic literature now but mm-hmm. on the topic of psychedelics and nature connection. Um, you might be familiar with Sam Gandhi, mm-hmm. um, who's very familiar with this topic and I've seen him do a couple of excellent presentations on it. Um, as far as I'm aware, there's nothing on MDMA and nature connection. Right. It's, um, it's something you know, particular to the classic psychedelics. Mm-hmm. So we can say at very least in this context, or, you know, yeah. kind of on the topics that we've been talking about. And, the climate and ecological crisis, there's, there's something... Um, I wonder if MDMA is a prime candidate for SOMA, going back to Huxley, yeah, right. that it's the drug that everyone takes and it makes you feel better and then off you go, yeah. back to your life of drudgery. Yeah, no MDMA on a dead planet. So, yeah, I hear you about um, festivals being... You know, spaces of kind of de facto decriminalisation. Mm. Uh, and actually, I mean, we have psilocybin spores are legal mm-hmm. to purchase and trade in this country mm-hmm. um, and it's trivially easy to like order the appropriate kit including spores to be able to grow psilocybin mushrooms on the privacy of your own home and mm-hmm. I've heard of no one getting in any kind of legal mm-hmm. trouble for doing that um, 
just as it's relatively straightforward to go out picking liberty caps um, if you know what you're doing in the right mm. time and place of the year. Um, it's uh, so then we get you know the question reflected on earlier. What if it's if it's actually quite possible, quite easy? Why are people not doing this? Well, they think it's dangerous. That's less and less a dynamic. They think it's strange. Mm. Still, I think the more important aspect mm. or side of things. And I wonder whether um, it's the the time is ripe for some kind of declaration asserting our right to use the indigenous psychoactive plants mm. of these lands. And this is actually how this conversation came about. Is that I sent you a message, you know, using those something like those words, um, or quite a long time ago. Now it's taken us a while to actually arrange this conversation, but here we are. Um, and it was inspired by Extinction Rebellion's declaration of rebellion. And just having that reminder that w- words are powerful. Mm. Well, and well-chosen words are particularly powerful. Mm. Um, and that declaration of rebellion has now travelled the world and been you know mm. read out outside of parliaments and, and town halls mm. often as the uh, in the context of a launch of a local extinction rebellion chapter um, I yeah, can, can you see that the possibility utility of some kind of um, declaration um, on the topic of these these psychedelic plants and mushrooms mm. well were it not for the fact that people do get busted, um, you know, thinking particularly in the States, um, but I, I think the present system actually works quite well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in that, as you say, you know, if you if you want to get into psychedelics, you can, but you, I like the fact that you've got to want to. That you can't just walk down your high street and buy them in a smart shop as you could briefly. I didn't think that was particularly helpful, and I heard stories of in the mid 2000s people would just nip down to Camden Market and buy a load of truffles and mm. neck them and go back to work that doesn't seem a particularly good context to be taking psychedelics but I, 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 I qualify that with that were it not for the fact that people get busted it works quite well so um, yes I mean I think some declaration of our right that there's a right to choose your own consciousness or your own um, reality, I suppose, to a certain extent. Um, one would need to think very carefully about well, the right words. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I mean, the, the, the context for me also would be the climate and ecological crisis. Yes. In some sense, like, I, I, I hear you that like, you know, I, pref- I kind of would prefer not to be having to consider this. I yes. prefer to be in a situation where, yeah, you know, we have festivals of people feel so inclined they can mm. kind of seek it out but the place i've got to with this is like uh we're in a really fucking bad situation here yeah and actually uh those of us that understand that this is one potential solution mm. part of the solution i almost feel like we have a responsibility to make others aware of the of this possibility mm. in a you know, deeper and broader way than mm. than simply saying, "Well, you know, you can go to Glastonbury if, if you want." Um, and maybe that maybe that's not right. Maybe that maybe the only responsible way to proceed is just to, is for people to accept that people will sometimes come across these spaces and um, and then enter it into that way. 
Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, but it's, but it's an investigation, if you like, about yes, whether there's I, something more to be done here at this critical time in, in history. Yeah. I'm really, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that view as well. And um, we are in the Anthropocene mm -hmm. and, and we're all laboring under the, the delusion that we're still in the Holocene. So this Holocene stable state in the climate mm -hmm. that has enabled civilization, this last 20,000 year period of the Earth's history where the climate's been reasonably stable and predictable and that's allowed everything that we think of as normal to emerge. But we are no longer in that phase, we're in the Anthropocene. And to a certain extent I feel like all the gloves are off, the, n nobody knows what the rules are. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I, I, I resonate greatly with your, your um, what you're saying about the times are urgent, the need is now, we can't just sort of carry on with business as usual. Um, so I think the, the entry into the Anthropocene, whenever you know, that was, uh, change, does change everything. And words are important, so some kind of manifesto or a declaration of psychedelic rebellion I think would be great. But I think also more and more activists, like the friend I mentioned earlier who is holding monthly druidic healing ceremonies mm. and risking arrest and saying, I'm doing this because it's healing my community. I'm mm -hmm. doing it for the benefit of other yeah. people. I actually don't, I, yeah, I didn't see it myself so much as a declaration of psychedelic rebellion. I think that's why I prefer the language of, of rights. Okay. It's, it's our right to use the indigenous psychoactive plants of these lands. Ah. Um, uh, you know, a new, a new human right, or maybe it is yeah. already covered in, you know, in some way under the existing mm. human rights law, and we just need to actually use, you know, broaden the the definitional scope or of some existing law to to make it clear that you know actually we've always had this right. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so it doesn't make. I mean is completely inconsistent in the law that I can go out and pick blackberries and ferment them and, and drink myself to um, death <laughs> and that's completely legal or I can I can consume a fly agaric mushroom um, completely legally um, you know I, that's another story in a sense the whole story of the fly agaric mushroom which I suspect may also have been used in the past mm. particularly when Britain was forested um, the law is completely inconsistent, it doesn't make any sense. And I like that idea of, of saying that it is our right to use plants that are just here, plants mm -hmm. and fungi that are here. And, and the, um, the kind of, the, the trick I think here is, uh, or the curious part, is actually I think no one disagrees with that. I think, and I think, like, if you actually, you know, certainly one on one, and probably in most, you know, in most sort of group and public settings, any given politician would, well, of course, you know, of course you could, mm. you know, eat whatever's growing in your garden. Like, mm. it's, the, the idea that you, we couldn't do that is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so it's somehow. You know, the, this this declaration of our rights use these substances is is what beneath that even is simply a uh, a call to courage, a call mm. to say, like, let we let's just be open with mm. with the fact this is 
that this has always been okay, that any attempts to tell us that it's not okay are just like t obviously illegitimate and ridiculous. Mm. And that uh, it's, you know, not only do we have a right to be using these plants, arguably we have a responsibility to be using them mm. at this time of climate and ecological crisis. So maybe that's what it is. It's not a declaration mm. of right, or it's a declaration of both of right and of responsibility. Mm. And I think anything that could encourage people to be more open about what they do, I think would be a good thing. And I'm a great advocate of psychedelic eldership. And I, I remember when, uh, you know, I was a young hippie in the late 80s, early 90s, we thought, well, at some point, the 60s generation are going to move into the positions of power and then drugs will be legalized <laughs> and, and the revolution will happen. And, and of course, it didn't happen. And, you know, because as we get older, we, we become more conservative and, and people have now put clear blue water between what they did in their youth and mm. what they do now. And it's still unacceptable, unacceptable for people to be in a position of responsibility and say, yeah, I had this youth. Look at the ridiculousness whenever a politician gets discovered to have taken drugs had a spliff or mm. whatever in their youth i mean for god's sake it's just crazy i, I mean would you want to actually vote for someone who hadn't had that <laughs> experience when they or made mistakes when they were young that's what youth is for is for making mistakes right mm. um and if we could reach a point where that generation the baby boomers could actually come out and say yeah you know, I've had a, a history of using psychedelics and it's been only good. Or people saying, yeah, we took psychedelics and it was bad mm. because we need to learn from their mistakes. Mm. And I think one of the big mistakes in, that happened in the 60s was um, people were unprepared for um, the fact that psychedelics can uncover buried and repressed trauma. And... Um, you know, as we're starting to learn with the Me Too generation, uh, the number of people who've been sexually abused is actually astronomic and terrifying. And there hasn't been a language to, or a possibility of speaking about it until very recently. Mm. So if someone has had a history of abuse and then they take a psychedelic and in the 60s the doses were much higher, it's unsurprising that people went psychotic or had horrendous mm. times. Again, it comes, it comes back to this uh, this this view that mental illness isn't just in in the mind or in the brain. It's it's a cultural problem. It's a social problem, which of mm. course is what indigenous cultures who use psychedelics have always told us. You know, mm. you're healing something that is, that is a social problem. Mm. Um, so yeah. I think we've been yeah, we've been speaking for an, over an hour now. So it's probably I'm sure we could go for another hour. Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> it's been an amazing conversation. Um, yeah, I'm going to invite you just to offer any closing thoughts and any uh, things you'd like to point to, books, websites, events, if there's anything going on. Um, well, I mean, I'm sure the people who listen to this podcast are incredibly well-read and um, educate themselves, but I, I, I don't think it's coincidental that the question of psychedelics comes with a lot of learned scholarship from Aldous Huxley onwards and... All I would do is just encourage people to to read and um, I, I was I've mentioned Terence McKenna a number of times because he was such a huge influence on me. But he always said that the the qualities um, you needed to successfully cultivate mushrooms and remember he was 
he was working before you could buy grow kits. He said the qualities that you needed to grow mushrooms were the qualities you needed to take mushrooms. Mm -hmm. i.e. <laughs> fastidiousness, punctuality, accuracy, um, self-reflection. And, and I think he was speaking truth. Mm -hmm. and, and I think if we are to, to take psychedelics forward into a psychedelic society, we need people to be educated and to know the, the risks and know the safe context in which to do it and how to do it well and how to do it properly. And we can do that. So, um, yeah, go to the conferences, go to the festivals, see the speakers, be critical, be self-critical and mm -hmm. read. Okay. And you can do worse than pick up Andy's own book, Shroom, A Cultural History of the Magic Mushroom. To well, that that wasn't where I was going with that, but no, thank sure. you for the plug. But I'll, but I'll happily plug that because I, I read it pretty early on in you know, my discovery of this whole scene and it was I found it really valuable, so thank you for that. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you for this conversation. So we also mentioned um, Schumacher College, that um, uh, I've recently moved from... Well, London. I've been in London for most of the past ten years of my life to Tonnes in, mm -hmm. in Devon, and Schumacher was was a big reason for that. Knowing that there's a, a constant flow of, of fascinating people and ideas, uh, they continue to offer an array of uh, really wonderful courses, including the one that you're we're working on. So is that is that applications are going to be open for that? Uh, we're, we well, we hope we're, it's going through a validation process uh -huh. at the moment. So we are hoping to have some news about that very soon. Um, but do check the Schumacher website for our master's programmes. Um, the fact that I am here and on the faculty <laughs> means that there is um, lively discussion about these kind of <laughs> topics within um, our MA programmes. So um, uh, I'm sure there'll be much to um, interest your listeners at Schumacher <laughs> College. Thank you so much for your time. Pleasure.